The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So this is a great time of year for uh, sports. Uh, you got the NBA Finals going on. Any, anyone watching the NBA Finals? Anybody? Several, okay. Uh, anybody watching soccer right now? Any soccer fans? Okay, wow. Oh my goodness. Okay. Big, I so- wish I had more soccer illustrations. All right, that was the, that's the only one I've got. Uh, okay, any hockey fans? <laughs> okay, that was, that was a minority. All right, um, so we've got, uh, we've got lots of sports going on, a lot of championship stuff happening right now, big tournaments, and um, it, it's always exciting to watch. We're drawn to watch these because you're watching greatness. The best of the best are clashing right now, and we watch because we want to see that moment. We want to see that moment where the clutch shot or the incredible display of athleticism that happens, that makes history. Okay, we, we watch, and there's just something powerful. I mean, even if you're watching it by yourself, on TV, at your home. I mean, it's still like when it's down to the very end of the game and they just need one more goal or you're waiting to see if the team can come back and, and, uh, and score a win, you're, you're just watching. There's so much energy in that moment. You can really feel it. But nothing compares if you're th- to if you're there, actually. Like if you've ever been there and it doesn't even have to be like a, a championship game seven kind of situation. I mean, if you're, if you're just there at a game that's intense and it's close, there's like this community emotion that everyone is sharing that it, it's just powerful. Like I was just, I didn't get a chance to watch uh, game three of the NBA finals, but I watched some of the highlights in, in Cleveland when Cleveland won game three. And you should have seen these Cavs fans, if you didn't see it, I mean, you could feel the energy from the arena through the television. I mean, they're just, they're leaning in, they're just willing their team to victory. And when they were, when they were coming back from behind, I mean, they're about to fall out of the stands. I mean, they're just so excited. I mean, they really, I mean, they could feel it. And that's one of the things that we're so drawn to moments like that. You just feel a part of something. It's so, it's so enlivening to witness. Now we're going through this series called In the Room. And we're talking about these big questions that are so often very obvious or, or so often they're there, but we don't want to talk about, we don't know how to talk about it, or we just don't know to ask these questions. And I think there's a question that is is probably in this room with every one of us to some degree. It's a very simple and obvious question, but it's a very important question. It's this, how can I feel close to God? How can I feel, I mean, I want to feel drawn in. How do I feel close to God? No matter where you're at in your journey, there's a good chance somewhere in the recesses of your mind or maybe the forefront of your mind, you're asking this question. You may be here and you're like, look, I don't even know if I believe in God. I'm just here. I've got questions. I don't know where, where I stand. I, my friend brought me or my family member brought me and maybe the question you're asking is like, I know they feel it. I've seen it like really change their life, but I don't feel it. How do I feel it? How do I feel close to God? I'm, if I'm going to have some kind of relationship with God. I'm going to need some real encounter. 
Others may be here, and you may say, look, I'm kind of new at this. You know, I, I recently you know, started following Jesus, and I got baptized, and I was really, I mean, I felt it at first. Like those first couple weeks, couple months, I, I felt like I was on fire. But you, you may say, but if I'm honest, the last couple weeks, last couple months, man, with all that's going on in my life and, and all that I've got going on, man, my enthusiasm started to wane. Or maybe the last couple of years, it's just not been the same. And I'm wondering, am I, am I losing it? Am I losing something? Where did it go? How do I get it back? Others may be here and you may be saying, look, I've been following Jesus, but I've just went through a season where I took some really wrong turns. I've made some big mistakes. And I want to know, how do I get back? How do I feel close to God again? But maybe you, you may be here and you may be saying, look, no, I, I've been following Jesus for a long time. Um, I, I, I'm, you may say, like, I'm, I'm a seasoned Christian or Christ follower, you may say. But you may say, you know what, if, but if I'm being real with you, I'm kind of on spiritual autopilot. I'm kind of dry. I don't think I'm falling into disaster, but I just feel like I'm, I'm dry. How do I renew and rekindle that passion for God? You know, there, there's a, a pattern in the Bible for renewal for renewing our hearts and renewing our souls and, and drawing close to God. And we're wrapping up this In the Room series, the story of Nehemiah. We're wrapping it up where there's this passage that beautifully displays this pattern of renewal. It answers this question, how can I feel close to God? We're going to look at that together. We're going to look in the, the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. And we're looking at chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can turn there or a Bible app. You can open that um, and, and follow along on Nehemiah chapter 9. It's in your bulletin as well. You'll also find a fill-in-the-blank outline in there if you're a note-taker. And it's also going to be up here on the screens. Let me just give you a little bit of background if you're just now joining us. Um, if this is your first time hearing the story, we've got the entire series in Nehemiah. It's online. You can go watch uh, the videos. But let me just get you caught up if you're just now joining us for the first time. Here's what's going on in this story. It's in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's about 450 years before the time of Jesus. And the whole story takes place pretty much in the city of Jerusalem. And at this point in history, Jerusalem has, has been um, sacked. It's in ruins. And the, the people of Israel had been taken into exile and for generations, it was a judgment on their disobedience. And after a couple generations, God starts sending them back. And he sends them back in waves. He sends Ezra, a guy named Ezra, leads a group back. And they start rebuilding Jerusalem. They start with the temple. They rebuild the temple. And then they send, uh, Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the wall. That's the story we've been studying this spring. They've been, he rebuilds the wall. And then once the wall and the temple are built, they start repopulating the city. But what one of the important things they do is they rebuild the spiritual community. They become a people that are worshipers of God again. And that's the section that we've been studying here. And that's where we're at in, part, in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. So let's look at this. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 1. It says this. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Okay, let's, get a, let's just pause and kind of get the picture here. Um, if, you were, if you've been going through the series with us, uh, several weeks ago we talked about how they gathered together for a worship service. It was like their first worship service where they'd come together, they read the law, and it was a time of celebration. They left that time and were feasting. Now it's like three and a half weeks later and they're coming back together, but this time it's completely different. You notice it's not feasting, it's fasting. And they're wearing sackcloth. 
It's a kind of fabric. It's kind of a rough fabric that they're wearing, and they're all putting earth on their heads. That's like actual dirt or ashes. This isn't a metaphor. This is literal. They're wearing rough. Um, they're wearing this rough fabric, sackcloth, and they've got dirt or ashes on their heads. Now, why in the world are they doing this? This is a posture of mourning. You say, okay, that's, it still sounds strange. They're putting dirt on their heads. Like kind of the, the best parallel for us to think about it is how in some cultures when, when they're in a season of mourning, you know how they'll wear all black? This is that culture's version of that. If they're mourning, they're wearing sackcloth and they have ashes on their head. They're coming together in a posture of mourning. Why are they doing this? Let's keep reading and find out. Verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord, their God. So it kind of gives us the format of their worship service. This is what happens. They all show up. They've been fasting. They're wearing sackcloth. They have ashes. And for the first quarter of the day, they read the law. That's, the, that's three hours. They read the law, the scriptures, all of the commands of God. And then the next three hours is a time of confession and worship. They're confessing their sins, the ways that they have not personally lived up to the law. But you notice it also said they're confessing the iniquities of their fathers. Now, why are they confessing the sins of their parents and their ancestors? Like, what does that have to do with them? This is a really powerful moment in the the history of God's people. Remember, this is that first community that's returned to Jerusalem, rebuilt Jerusalem after it was destroyed by enemies. God allowed that to happen as a judgment. And so now they're representing all of Israel and they're coming together and they're confessing, God, we sinned, but you are re- they're worshiping. You're renewing this community. We're, it's like we're starting fresh. And if you go through all of chapter 9, the way they do this confession, it's like the leaders stand up and they pray like this community prayer for all the people, representing all the people of Israel, and they go back through their history and remind themselves of their history and how they got to this place. It's really fascinating. I wish we had time to go through the whole chapter, um, but let's just look at the beginning here. We're going to just look at a small sampling of this chapter. Look at verse 6. This is what it says. And you are the Lord... You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Now he's going to start remembering their history, and he starts, this is where he starts. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. They go on through the history of Israel and they tell this whole history of their people. And if we could boil it down to one sentence, the story that they tell, it's this. God, you have been so faithful even though we 
have been so unfaithful. Let me give you just one example from this story. They're praying as a community and the leader says, God, remember when we were enslaved so many hundreds of years ago in Egypt. We were slaves in Egypt. And we called out, God, would you free us from Egypt? And you may remember the story. God sends Moses and he stands before Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Be freed from their slavery. He says, God, we called out to you, calling for a deliverer from our slavery. And through mighty miracles, you made that happen. I mean, God had sent plagues. He had sent swarms of locusts and frogs. I mean, by miracles, God softened the heart of Pharaoh. And these people, they left Egypt. And he says, we we were going out into, into the wilderness to be your people. You were taking us to a promised land. But Pharaoh changed his heart. We had our backs against the Red Sea. And the chariots of Egypt came just storming against us, trying to take us back to Egypt or kill us on the spot. And we cried out, God, what are we going to do? Why what, did you bring us out here to kill us? But what did God do? He parted the Red Sea. We walked across on dry land. And when the chariots went storming in after us, the sea swallowed them up. Say, God, you were so faithful. It was like we had one warrior against all the warriors of Egypt. We only need one warrior, God himself. He fought for us and we didn't even lift a finger. He goes on and say, God, we we stood before Mount Sinai. You were so faithful. You gave us the law. You said, my covenant, I will be faithful to you. I will protect you. I will look after you. Here is my covenant. Here are the laws for you to fulfill as part of the covenant. And he remembers, God, you were so faithful. But while Moses was up on the mountain, we got tired of waiting and we took off all of our gold jewelry. We melted it down and we made a statue, a golden calf. And Aaron, the brother of Moses, stood up and said, This is the God who led you out of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine of all the blasphemies? I mean, they just saw the miracles of God and how God had been so faithful and already they had been unfaithful to God. And they go through the story. Generation after generation, it gets worse and worse and worse. One, the generation is, is unfaithful, but God is faithful and he protects them. And it gets so bad to, the, to where there's kings actually bringing idols into the holy temple of God to replace the worship of the one true faithful God with these empty idols. And they say, God, you were so faithful, but we were so unfaithful. This is the story that they're, that they're going to recount. But you've got to see where they start this whole prayer. I want to reread verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. Look what it says. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. I want you to see where they start. Before they remember the relationship of God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness. They start with who it is that they're in this covenant relationship with. It's God himself. The maker of heaven, the heaven of heavens. I mean, think about it like this. Who is this that they have this relationship with? This is the one who made everything. When you think of God creating the universe... If you're imagining God in outer space saying, you know, it'd be nice to have some stars around here, that's not the picture. It's God and nothing. It's not God in space. It's not God in a universe. It's God and there is nothing else in existence. You say, I can't fit that into my brain. I know. 
It's God and nothing else. Well, how long was God there with nothingness? For eternity. For infinite time, he was like that. You see, when God made everything, the earth and everything that's on earth, he made time itself. Do you realize God is somehow outside of time, eternally existent? You say, that doesn't fit into my brain. It's because we're talking about God. Do you see how quickly when we talk about God, how quickly we realize that he will not fit into the confines of our minds? He is so much more infinitely bigger than we could possibly fit into our brains. This is the being they're in relationship with. I want you to imagine it like this. Maybe you've had a friend that you've been in a relationship with and and they were unfaithful to you. They betrayed you. They stabbed you in the back. That's one of the most hardest things to experience in this world. It's one of the most shameful things for a friend to turn on another friend when a friend is unfaithful. That's shameful, but they haven't been unfaithful to another friend. They've been unfaithful to the Almighty God. That's where they start in this process of renewal. Number one on our outlines, renewal ignites. The place we have to start, the initiation, renewal ignites when we realize God's enormity. When we realize He's enormous. He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He does not fit into the confines of our brains. He is enormous. That's what starts the process of renewal is remembering that. They keep going. I want to jump down farther after they recount the whole history. He jumps down to verse 29. This is what he says. And you warned them, this is their ancestors, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously And did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. He says, they kept breaking your laws, generation after generation. They kept breaking your laws and you kept warning them. Over and over you kept warning them. You kept warning them by your prophets. Over and over you kept warning them about these laws. And then it says this, it describes the laws. He says, the laws that if we would just do them. Did you notice it says, we would live by them? Did you notice that part? We live by them. I want you to see how the Bible describes the laws of God because sometimes it's the exact opposite of what we think. When we think about the rules and laws of God, here's what we sometimes think. We're like, God, this is some kind of like moral gauntlet that you're sending us through to test our, our spiritual commitment. They're like these random ethical rules that, that are hoops that we have to jump through that, that don't really mean anything. They're just kind of difficult to do. They're unnatural for us to do. We don't want to do them. But we have to do it just to, just to prove to you that we're going to be faithful and that we're committed to you. Do you realize that's not at all what the Bible says about the laws of God? It says God's rules, His commands, His expectations. They're how, it's through that that we live. They're saying, God's saying, these aren't just these random laws. I made you. This is how you're designed to thrive. He says, 
So often what you think about these laws, man, God's expectations for sexuality, I mean, they're just unnatural. They're just not how we're wired. And the world says, man, that's just such a straitjacket. I want to really, really live. And God's saying, I invented sexuality. You're, You're a sexual being, God says, because I made you that way. I'm not telling you, I'm not testing you just to see if you can handle these strict rules. I'm telling you, this is how you were designed to thrive. It says, man, with, with your resources, with your finances, with your time, all these resources you've been blessed with, I'm not telling you this to, to kind of contort you in some unnatural position to test you. I'm saying that this is how you're designed to thrive. When you're generous with what you have, that's how you will thrive. He's saying, man, with, with your worship, I'm not just setting aside worship that you just kind of have to suffer through. He's saying, no, what I'm telling you is when you worship private, privately and with God's people, when you become a worshiper, that's going to radiate peace through your life and health through your life. That's how you're designed to thrive. It's by these laws that we will live. It's from the inventor to us telling us this is how humanity was, what humanity was designed for. In the early 20th century, it's 1920s and 30s. They had just started discovering uh, radiation, and it was kind of getting to like a popular level. But they didn't know the effects of radiation. And so they wrongly assumed that it was healthy for you. And so they started bottling it up and peddling it as a tonic and as a medicine, as a cosmetic. It was all this way that radiation was supposed to bring life into you. Any ailment, it was going to fix. And so they would actually take, there's this one product called a Radithor. And it was bottled up water infused with radiation. And they would inc- in- encourage you to drink it two to three times a day to cure whatever ailments you had. And there's one prominent uh, spokesperson for it that that would drink down this Radithor three times a day and within the span of about two to three years, his jaw started to get holes in it and his teeth started falling out. And he ended up dying from it and that's when they got the hint that this stuff that they're peddling is poison. See, that's what the world is doing. It's packaging poison saying this will bring you life. This is how you really live. And it's the exact opposite of what you need. God is saying, this is what brings you life. But we see what the world is peddling with all these empty promises of it bringing life. And it's actually poisoning you and bringing destruction. See, here's what they're saying. They're saying, God, we chose. It's not that we are choosing between God and life. We were choosing between God and destruction. And we picked destruction. See, this is such an important thing where they're stopping in this renewal process and remembering, God, your ways bring life. How could we ever stray from them? Number two on our outlines, renewal kindles when we treasure God's ways. Renewal kindles when we treasure God's ways. So often, we know that we're supposed to be obedient. We want to be obedient to God, but we've actually believed the world and so we try and find some place in the middle. Okay, I'm gonna, I want to be obedient to God, but I don't want to give up having the good life. So how far can I go? Where, how much can I do and still be in, in, in God's favor? But the reality is remembering God's ways bring life. The rest is poison. Here's the second thing. Did you notice that they said, God, we chose destruction instead of you, but you were so faithful. 
You are so merciful. You've brought us back to this point and are renewing this community. Number three on our outline, renewal is fueled when we are stunned by God's response. God was faithful even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, continued to have patience and grace and mercy. Let's keep going. I want to jump to the end and let's look at what their final response was. They get through all of this prayer of their history. They've come to this point, this time of confession and worship, and this is where they end up. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They come to the end, they say, God, we see, we've confessed our sins, we don't We haven't lived up to the law, but we see the pattern. It was generation after generation after generation. They were unfaithful. And so they said, so we are saying no more. And they actually write up a covenant, like a legal contract that they all sign. They actually sign, the the princes and priests and Levites, the leaders representing all of them, sign this legal covenant. And if you read into the next chapter, chapter 10, it would describe all of the things they are committing as a community. They're linking arms saying, enough, we have got to do something to stop this pattern. We will link arms, do everything we can to be faithful to God. Number four, in the process of renewal. Renewal solidifies when we depend on God's people. When we look at the pattern in our lives, and when we look at the pattern throughout history, that humanity has no hope of just pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and saying, no, I will be faithful. Man, look at the pattern of humanity. Look at the story in Scripture and look at the pattern in your own life. We realize, I cannot do this by myself. I've got to link arms and say, I I have to do this. I have to have a commitment, a covenant with, with others around me so that we will do this together. I have no hope. Who am I to say, unlike every other generation in history, that I can do it? No, we need each other. So they make a covenant in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Here's how the rest of the story of Nehemiah plays out. Chapter 11, we studied this a couple weeks ago. They repopulate Jerusalem. And chapter 12 is like the crescendo. They, they celebrate the wall. We talked about this last week. They dedicate the wall. They say, look at all that God has done. They dedicate the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah stays in Jerusalem for about, um, about 12 years. He travels back to Susa. He works for the king, the king of of Persia. He he starts working for the king again. And then we have chapter 13. And it's it's actually an epilogue to this whole story. It happens like 10 to 20 years later. He goes back. And you know what he finds when he returns? We studied this several weeks ago now. Do you know what he finds when he returns? All aspects of that covenant, line by line by line by line, they broke Every single line. The pattern had happened yet again. If you were to lay out the Old Testament, not by genre like it is, but if you were to lay it out historically, and you put all the them in all historically, chronologically, probably the last chapter of the Old Testament would be probably Nehemiah 13. It closes saying it wasn't enough. And the story reopens in the New Testament with a woman finding out that she's going to become pregnant even though she's a virgin. And she's going to be, contained, she's going to be carrying one they will call Jesus. 
God in the flesh. See, the story of the Bible is what we really need is a Messiah. We need God himself coming to earth in the flesh to die on the cross to pay for our sins. We need his mercy every day. We need his grace. Number five on our outline, renewal stays when we are anchored to God's gospel. The word gospel means good news and the good news is even though we continue to make mistakes, we have his grace new every morning because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we look at this story, this process of renewal, this is our story. I mean, look at this whole process. This is our story. Let's start with this. I want you to imagine that you're you're at a, game, at a game seven. Okay, let's say the NBA Finals goes to game seven and, and you're there and you're waiting to see who's going to win and, and it's just the crowd is just pulsing, waiting for just some great moment and it's coming down where Steph Curry is going to have to drain a three from like the locker room or something, okay? It's just crazy. And you're just waiting to see what happens and see if there's going to be a comeback. You're just, you want to see historic greatness and you're drawn to it. And in that moment, I mean, just the crowd, whatever happens, just the crowd is just is going crazy and you just feel the adrenaline. I mean, you're high-fiving some stranger. You hug the guy that you don't even know, okay? I mean, you just feel this energy just surging through you. We are drawn to greatness, all kinds of greatness. It doesn't matter what it is that that you think is great when you see it, whatever your hobby is, your interest is, when you see greatness in that field, you are drawn to it. You want to talk about it. We're drawn to beauty. Whether it's a, a new car or whether it's music, I mean, some of us, man, when you hear a soloist that is just phenomenal and the beauty of that music, it may just bring a tear to your eye just because of the beauty. We are drawn to greatness and to beauty. Do you know why? Is because you were designed, wired, you were made to worship. You're drawn to greatness and to beauty. It's because you were drawn to pour your worship on the one who invented greatness and beauty. The ultimate great being, the ultimate most beautiful being in, in the history of existence. God himself, you are drawn to be awestruck by God. Do you realize if as much as you could possibly experience at a concert that's just electrifying or at a, at a game seven championship game that's just, I mean, just energizing you, if you are transported into the presence of God, do you realize it's not even comparable as you're in the presence of that greatness, what would be surging through you? The greatness in this world, it's like a hint, it's like a blurry, faded hint of the greatness of of God himself who invented it all. Do you realize what you would feel inside of you in the presence of God? You would feel just so much energy surging through you in the presence of his greatness. You would feel like your molecules are going to explode. If you're standing before the, in the beauty of God himself, the inventor and maker of all that we find beautiful, if we were to stand in, in God's presence, his beauty would move us to the point that we feel like we're falling apart. That is who God is. And here's what we realize in our stories. That great and awesome and holy God, he wants you. And all the billions of of galaxies 
across the scope of the universe that's in his hand, in the midst of our tiny galaxy, in the billions of solar systems on our tiny planet, and all the billions of people that have walked across this planet, he knows you and he wants you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows every moment of your life. He knows your history, your future, your thoughts, your greatness and your failure. He knows every moment of it and he wants you. You say, how, how do I know that he wants me? How do I know how, how great he wants me? It's because he came down to earth and the awesome God somehow confined himself to the human body in Jesus Christ. That means awesome God was in a tiny, helpless infant baby that couldn't hold up its head or control its bladder. And God is confined to that infant grows to become a man, and what do we do? What is our response to God humbling himself being in a man? What is our response? We reject him. We mock him. We spit on him. We stripped him naked, tortured him, and nailed him to a cross. We nailed him like he was, like inhumanly, like he's a piece of furniture, drove nails through his arms, through his feet, nail him to the cross like you're nailing a sign to a post. And he hung there on the cross, bleeding in agony and dying, and rose again on the third day. Why did he go through that agony? He was paying for our sins. He was a sign, nailed to a post, a sign of how much God loves you and that he's after you. And many in this room, we've discovered that. And we said, yes, Jesus, you've been so faithful. You've been writing the story, drawing me to yourself. I receive that. I want to receive your forgiveness. I'll follow after you. And we've seen his faithfulness over and over and over in our lives. When we doubted, we see his faithful. But how often, what is our response to his faithfulness? Even today, even this weekend, even this morning, in response to his faithfulness, what is so often our response? We are unfaithful to him. We've seen the, the agony of our sin. And yet we still fall into our lusts and our greed and our selfishness. We still fall into our apathy and our worshiplessness. Even though we've seen how the glory of God nailed to a grisly cross, we still fall into our unfaithfulness. But how does he respond to us? with unimaginable grace and mercy. Do you realize he's standing? Jesus, with scars from the cross, is standing in the throne room, and he's advocating for you? Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying, God, you can overlook that sin, it's not that bad. He's saying, yes, God, that sin right there, that one sin, that one attitude, that one word, that one thought, that one action, that one sin deserves an eternity of judgment in hell. But I took hell for them. Remind you, they're washed clean. They're declared innocent and righteous. Let me remind you, it's not that their sin is not a big deal. It's that I took it on the cross. He is advocating and his mercy is new every day. He's poured His grace upon us. 
And as we cling and anchor ourselves to that good news, we find His renewal that we need every single day. Church, how could we possibly respond to that? How could we possibly respond to His faithfulness? The only thing that we could possibly do might be similar to what they did, which it's not enough, but it's something that churches have done throughout the generations is we simply say, God, we're unfaithful, but we're going to link our arms. We're going to sign a covenant together that we will be faithful before you. Is a covenant together, is it enough? No, we need the gospel every single day. We need more than a covenant but we're not going to do less than a covenant together. Here's our response. Many churches, when you, when you become, start to belong to a church, you realize church is not just your spiritual Walmart where you get your spiritual goods from and all the different things that you, that you need for you and your family. You realize church is a place, it's a community that we link arms, we make a written covenant together and we say before God, we will link arms, give you our best, even though we know it's not going to be enough, we give you our best to be faithful to you because you have been so faithful. So we here at West Pines, we are a, a community, a covenant community. There's, we, some churches call it membership, we actually call it mathetes. We use that word because that's the original Greek word used to describe a follower of Christ. And when you look at what a mathetes is, it's someone who says, I am, it's all or nothing following Jesus, and that's what we want to become together. And so many of us have signed an actual covenant together as a church, as a group of, of West Pines mathetes. We've signed this covenant saying, I need you. I need to link arms with you as I'm following after Jesus. And I want to extend that opportunity to take that step this morning. I want to extend that opportunity for you. If you're saying, you know what, I think West Pines is my church home. Church is more than a place you attend. It's a place you belong. It's a place where you make a covenant with the people of that church. And I want to extend that opportunity. You say, how do I become a West Pines mathetes? When you go home this afternoon or this week, you'll, I want you to go on, on the West Pines website, westpines.org, and you'll find this slide will come up on the homepage. Become a West Pines mathetes. You just click there. It takes you to our mathetes page and it gives you the instructions of how that process works as a welcome video and then there's five videos that take you through they're, they're all each under 20 minutes it takes you through what does it mean to be a mathetes what are we committing and covenanting to do together and it takes you through that process and it actually gives you a covenant that you can sign and say you know what I need to be a part of a covenant community and I want to extend that opportunity to do that maybe this week you say look West Pines is my church home it's where I belong I want to be part of that community that's covenanting together to be faithful before a faithful God. For some of you, that's the step. Making West Pines your church home. But for some of you, there's another step that you need to take. It's that you're realizing this morning that God has been after you all of your life, that the great God of the universe, that we don't deserve his love and attention, he has arranged your life and you realize he's brought you to this moment where you accept what he's done for you to wash away your sins. And if that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to your creator, to what he's done for you through Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to accept the grace and mercy of God 
And so right there in your seats, if you're like, yes, I, I, I want to be saved, I, I want to receive the mercy of God, then just pray this prayer right there in your seats, just between you and God, make these words your own words. God, thank you. For some reason, thank you that you love me. Thank you for your mercy that I don't deserve. Thank you for dying on the cross, paying for my sins and washing me clean. Thank you for your grace and your mercy every day. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.